Nehemiah chapter 6, Nehemiah chapter 6. And tonight in chapter 6, we see that there is a conspiracy against Nehemiah. But but, but God's work must go on. In chapter 6 now, we're getting closer to finishing the wall. And so the Jews' enemies try this last-ditch effort to stop the completion of the building of the wall. And what they do, God's enemies, they invite Nehemiah two different times to meet with them. We see the first invitation in verse 2 and the second one in verse 10. But the invitations were just a scheme, just a lie, a plan to harm, to do harm to Nehemiah, which would stop the completion of the wall. But Nehemiah recognized their plan and he wisely refused the invitations. The first invitation was for Nehemiah to get together with Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem for a meeting to discuss how they could make plans on how they might work together. And here the enemy would argue about building Jerusalem's walls that Nehemiah had encouraged to build. But as we're going to see, the meeting was only a scheme to get Nehemiah away from Jerusalem to do him harm. So let's begin in chapter 6 with verses 1 and 2. And it reads, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our uh, enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So again, the reason that they wanted to meet with Nehemiah was because of the success he was having in building the walls. They're almost finished. This has been the reason for their opposition all all along, the building of the walls. Progress in the Lord's work always stirs up the, the, the anger of God's enemy. Moving forward, the, the enemy will attack you. Every time the Jews' enemies uh, heard, it says, about the success on the walls, they reacted violently. And you know, we sometimes find people like that even in the church. They may seem like good-natured people, members, but sometimes when the church wants to move forward or they present a project, uh, you can count on somebody reacting in disagreement. They won't show the enthusiasm for the work of God. Their opposition may be subtle, but it will always show itself when God's work uh, is successful and begins to move forward. Going forward in God's work exposes the enemy and reveals their true identity. In verse 2, notice the enemy says, come on, Nehemiah, let's let's get together in Ono. Now, why did they have to meet in Ono? Ono was about 25 to 35 miles from Jerusalem. Why not meet in Jerusalem? Because you see, the enemy wanted to get Nehemiah a good distance away from Jerusalem, the place of his duty, and away from the place where he was doing a lot of good for the Lord. This would stop the building of the wall, as we'll see later on. Nehemiah needed to stay in Jerusalem if the walls were going to get finished. But they're saying, come on, Nehemiah, let's let's talk this thing over. Don't be unfriendly. And of course, the enemy's strategy was, if you can't beat them, Join them and then take over. Once the enemy gets a full foothold in a ministry, he starts to weaken the work from the inside and eventually the work will fail. Now, none of these people, none of these people were people that Nehemiah needed to get together with. 
there was no reason for for him to meet with them. Because you see, there was nothing in the Lord's work that needed to be discussed. You see, Nehemiah knew what he had to do. And that's all he had to focus on. Nehemiah's enemies had fought against this work from the very start. And meeting with them and and planned by them, all right, would definitely not help the Lord's work to move forward. And it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. Be careful of meetings with those who oppose the Lord's work and the Lord's doctrine. Those meetings are usually for the purpose of getting you to compromise your doctrine and your duty in some way. Amos 3.3 tells us, can two walk together without agreeing? You know, can we walk together unless we agree in the same direction? God's people are often criticized for not wanting to meet with, with apostates. But we need to remember that today's apostates have the same character and the same beliefs of Sanballat and his partners. They don't believe in our doctrine. They don't promote the gospel that we believe in. They only want to compromise, corrupt, and stop the work of God. Verse 2, notice what, he said, what Nehemiah said. They thought to do me harm. They wanted to meet with me only because they wanted to do me harm. God's word tells us the real purpose here for these meetings. They wanted to do whatever they could to stop Nehemiah from completing the wall. And being 25 miles away from Jerusalem, they could have easily done a lot of harm to Nehemiah. Man, they could have killed him out there. They could have buried him out there. They could have done something where he couldn't come back and he couldn't be around to finish the wall. It would have stopped the work. And with the enemy making its way into the camp, it wouldn't be long before the work stopped and the enemy would have probably destroyed what they had already done. Look at verse 3 now. He says, So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Nehemiah said, Well, thanks for the invitation, but no thanks. I'm not going to join you for this meeting. And he gave him two reasons why he wouldn't meet with them. First, he said, he says, God's work was, my, was his priority. He says, I'm doing a great work. He said, that's why I won't come down. His work was in Jerusalem. And it was more important than any meetings his enemies wanted to have. And that was good enough for, any, for Nehemiah to not meet with him. Nehemiah, notice, Nehemiah had his priorities right. I am doing the work of God. That is my focus. That is where I am going to stay. He saw God's work as being the most important thing. Notice again, great work. It was a great work. So it would be very wrong to stop this great work to meet with these men who are enemies of God. Now, when people see God's work as a work that's very important, they won't give it up. They won't take a break. They won't stop. They won't do other things. They won't go to other places and they won't attend other events when the need is when the need is to do the work of God. And as God's people, we need to learn this from Nehemiah. We need to learn priorities. If God's work is really important to God's people, they won't be going here and there instead of being in church on Sundays. People who aren't regular in their attendance to church, you know, show by their actions that that they don't consider the work of God being a great work. 
There's a lot of pastors who go to everything they're invited to. And a lot of times, you know, they get invited to all kinds of things. That, you know, and, and it takes them away from their church a lot. But, but when they are, when they're away from the church a lot, how can they study the Word of God the way they should and be, and be around for their congregation? And like I said, pastors get a lot of invitations you know, for pastor fellowships, for leadership conferences, for city functions. But their priority is in the body with their congregation. Now, sometimes we'll be criticized because we don't accept their invitation. Oh, well, they're not very friendly. You know, it, it, it would be nice, but you know, when you do three studies a week, I, I, I want to be here and I want to be able to study. So when I come up here in the pulpit, I know that I've done my best. But again, you can't be all over and accepting all these invitations, not be around for the body of Christ, the congregation that God has placed, you know, as your your calling. Then the second reason that the work shouldn't stop is he needed to be in Jerusalem if the work on the walls was going to get finished. Notice what he says again. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? If he left to make this meeting, the work would stop. You see, they didn't start the building, building the walls until he got to Jerusalem. And it was because of, this, of his fearless leadership that, that the building continued in spite of all kinds of opposition that they experienced. Nehemiah knew he was needed on the job. So it wouldn't be good for him to leave. And you see, the enemy knew that. And that's why they wanted to get him out of Jerusalem. They knew that if Nehemiah left Jerusalem, the work would stop, which was their ultimate goal. That's Satan's ultimate goal, to get you and me to stop the work of God. And you know what? That, we may not, you might not be in a ministry, but you know what the work of God is? It's your growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Your Christian life. Satan wants to keep you so busy and those things might be, you know, good in and of themselves, but he wants to keep you so busy that you don't read, you don't pray, you don't go to church and you don't need to do the, you don't do the things that you need to do to grow in the knowledge of, and the grace of Christ. He wants to stunt your growth. He wants to keep you from growing so that you won't be a productive believer. So again, they knew These enemies knew that Nehemiah was needed on the job. And if we would only have that spiritual discernment to know that, you know, being too busy and and invitations to go here and there instead of being where we need to be, that is Satan's attempt to hinder the work of God either in your ministry or in your lives. And sometimes people seem to think it doesn't matter if, if, if... you know, they don't pray and they don't read and, and, you know, and they're not attending church or they're not making their, 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 their uh, meeting their ministry responsibilities. It does matter when we're not here. It matters and more than people think. And, and, and many times, you know, churches can't do what they need to do or called to do because, again, the, the, the folks aren't there to, in that ministry to meet that need. Look at verse 4. Nehemiah said, but they sent me this message four times and I answered him in the same manner. You can see how persistent the enemy is. You know, when we sleep, he's not sleeping. 
He is planning, he's scheming on how he's going to get to you in the morning, the moment you wake up. Even though Nehemiah didn't accept their invitation, they continued to pester him. Showing us that the enemy doesn't give up as easy as a lot of Christians do. The first time you say no, usually doesn't stop the enemy. Usually doesn't stop his attacks. He will keep trying again and again and again. He doesn't take no for an answer. He doesn't let rejection discourage him. Many Christians are often defeated because of the persistent attacks of the enemy. I just, I I quit. I give up. I can't take this anymore. They don't have the determination to keep refusing the enemy. So sooner or later, they just give up uh, on these ongoing attacks. Nehemiah shows us how to defeat defeat the, 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 the persistency of the enemy here. Each, notice he says, each time he attacked, he told them the same thing. No. I'm not coming down. He is being just as persistent as the enemy is. And to defeat the enemy takes great determination. You have to be just as determined in your effort to defeat the enemy as he is as determined to defeat you. You cannot deal with any evil in a half-hearted way. Evil is too persistent. Evil is too determined to be defeated that way. So Nehemiah was firm in his first refusal to meet with the enemies, and he continued to be just as firm in his next refusal and the one after that and the one after that. And that's why Nehemiah was victorious over evil. Verses 5 through 7. Then Sanballat sent his servant to meet, as before, notice, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. So here, the enemy tries to put more pressure on Nehemiah. But now he uses a different tactic. Slander. Slander. Lying. Nehemiah is now being accused of plotting to be the next king. He's plotting. They're saying that he's plotting a rebellion against the king of Persia. Now, notice it says it was in an open letter. Now, Usually, the letters were put in a silk bag, they were tied up, and they were carefully sealed so nobody could read them. But not this letter. It was sent to Nehemiah by a messenger, uh, carried by, by, by hand, open. You know, it's like if I had a letter and I said, here, you know, take this to somebody. But it was just open. For, that's what he did. Why? So that he, the messenger would peek at it and anybody else who could look at it would see it. And they go, oh, man, did you see what was in that letter? And here goes the grapevine. Making Nehemiah look like, oh, he's, he's, he's there to start a revolt. He's going to rebel. He, he's, he's got prophets out there saying, hey, he's here to be the next king. And he's going to overthrow the king of Persia. But again, it was just it was a matter. It was a lie. And so again, it was to start spreading this open letter was for the purpose of starting rumors about Nehemiah. Look at verse 8. 
Then Nehemiah said, I sent to him no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. Nehemiah gave a good response to this letter. First of all, he, he, he flat out denies what he's being accused of. He says, not one thing that you have said in this letter is true. None of these things are being done. The accusation wasn't true. He wasn't planning a rebellion. Secondly, he tells them, you invent them in your heart. You've made all of this stuff up. Sanballat was a liar. And Nehemiah told him so to his face. You see, the problem wasn't with Sanballat's head. The problem was with his heart. And that's always where the problem lies. This is always the problem when men rebel against God. And I've said it before, the heart of the, 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 heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. The world talks about education when people do wrong. Oh, well, they're ignorant. Well, you know, they don't know. Well, they're not educated. And on. But the solution, that solution only deals with their head. God talks about salvation for the sinner, which is the right and only solution, because you see, it deals with the heart where the real problem lies. Jesus said in Mark 7, 21 through 23, notice, for from within, out of the heart of men. He didn't say out of the head. He said, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts. Those evil thoughts in our mind, they come from our heart because the heart is the seedbed of truth. From within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And in these verses, Jesus is presenting in their logical order the three forms where sin appears. First, in human nature, out of the heart of men. Second, in the human mind, evil thoughts. And third, in human action, adultery, fornications, murder. You see, they start in the heart. We entertain them in the mind. And the next thing you know, we're acting them out in the flesh. Look at verse 9. He says, For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. So the enemy tried to put fear in the hearts of the people. And that's what the enemy loves to do. He loves to make us fearful. He loves to make us fearful. And the, the enemy often does this. They hinder the work of the Lord. You see, when, when brute force isn't possible, well, fear is a good alternative. Because fear will, will weaken the people's hands. Fear stops the word of God. Fear weakens us. Fear paralyzes us. And it makes us unable to do the work. Faith makes us strong on the other hand, but fear makes us weak. We're paralyzed by the threats of the enemy. The Jews' enemies knew that they couldn't stop the work if they could create enough fear. And even if they didn't stop the work totally through fear, they would at least slow it down. Because fear makes us, you know, reluctant. Well, you know, I don't know if, this, if I go and this, you know, we start thinking, fear just creates a, a, a you know, it, it, we become reluctant or we just, I'm not going to do it. I'm afraid, of, I'm afraid of what will happen. So what does Nehemiah do? He takes their fear to the Lord. Nehemiah was asking God to strengthen his hands because fear had weakened his hands. Notice again at the end of verse 9, he says, Now therefore, God, O oh God, strengthen my hands. This is what we need to do when we become fearful. 
This is the way to conquer fear. Take it to God in prayer. Verse 10. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. So now, so trying with Nehemiah, trying to get Nehemiah to stop, it failed again. And they tried a fifth time. But this time to meet in Jerusalem. This invitation, notice, came from a Jew who was in cahoots with the enemy. So it failed to, they failed to get him out to Jerusalem. And so now here comes Shemaiah. And he gives them this invitation. Come on, we need to get together because I got to tell you about this plot to kill you, Nehemiah. But Shemaiah is a false prophet. And here he is. He's pretending to be really concerned about Nehemiah and his safety. He says, Nehemiah, look, I need to talk to you. I need to tell you about this plot to kill you. And the temple was the only place where Nehemiah would be safe. That's why he said, let's meet in the house of God. The temple refers to the inner sanctuary, the holy place. Shemaiah wasn't asking Nehemiah to do a very, he, he was asking Nehemiah, I should say, to do a very cowardly thing by meeting in the house of God. But what Shemaiah didn't plan on was Nehemiah's spiritual discernment. You know how you get spiritual discernment from reading the word of God. Shemaiah wanted Nehemiah to think that he and Shemaiah were going to be killed at night. And to be safe, they had to hide in the house of God, in the holy place. Now, this sounds like a great idea. And it would be very tempting But look at verse 11. And I said, Nehemiah says, and I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Nehemiah is showing that it would be a cowardly thing to do. He says, it would be a cowardly thing for me to do to go into the house of God and lock the doors for my safety. He's saying, he's saying it would show the other people in Jerusalem that their leader wasn't, a, wasn't as brave as they were. They had to stay in their homes. And you know, we read earlier that the gates, the gates weren't up yet. So they would be unprotected from the enemy. So for Nehemiah to show less courage than those, than those he was leading, it would cause the people to question his character and to stop following him. And rightly so. Which is exactly what the enemy wanted to happen. He's saying, should somebody in my position enter into the temple to save their own neck and sin? Because that would be sin on Nehemiah's part. Nehemiah wouldn't hide in the house of God because that was against the law of God. It was forbidden for anybody but a priest to enter the holy place. You see that in Numbers 18.7. Remember when Uzziah went into the temple? thinking he could go in there and, and, and act like a priest? If Nehemiah would have gone into the temple for his own safety, it would have been wrong. It would have been a serious disregard, disregard for God's word. It would have been a sin. Nehemiah knew that he couldn't be a good leader in God's work if he disregarded God's law. 
And you know what? That is still true today. And yet a lot of people in the church don't pay much attention to this. A lot of people would rather their leaders not be very strict in following God's Word. They'd like it watered down a little bit. And let's not talk so much about sin and the blood and hell and, and conviction. So that I can go out feeling better about myself. They don't want their leaders to be very strict in following God's Word because they don't want to be strict in doing God's Word. And God's enemy is always trying to offer excuses for not obeying the Word of God. And evil tries really hard, extra hard, to make the circumstances justify disobeying God's command. Well, you don't understand the situation that I was in. I had to do something even though it was, you know, against the Word of God. And many times we allow fear to overcome our faith. And we think it's a good enough reason to disobey God's word. But it's never a good enough reason. We have a great example of this in 1 Samuel chapter 13 when Saul did the same thing. You know, Samuel had told Saul, I want you to go down after Saul had been anointed king. Saul tells Samuel, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel tells Saul, I want you to go down to Gilgal ahead of me. And I'll join you there to sacrifice the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. But he said, you must wait. Notice, you must wait for seven days until I arrive and give you further instruction. Now, Samuel was a prophet. So when Samuel spoke, he was speaking for God. He was the spokesperson for God. He was speaking God's word to Saul. You must wait for me. And then when you jump to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, it says, so Saul waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him. So, you know, his son Jonathan had gone in and, and, and attacked the Philistines. And now they were coming to attack Saul. And he's freaking out. The, the, his army started to scatter and to hide and to run away. His army was thinning out. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. And now it happened as soon notice as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. You see, Samuel came on the seventh day, but he came at the last minute. And that's the way we get when God doesn't come when we think he should come. God's word said that he's not a man that he should lie. He keeps his word. Not one word ever fails that God speaks. And when Samuel said, I will be there in seven days. He came. But God, many times, you know, when we pray and we ask him, you know, for, for when we're praying for things and needs. Sometimes God, man, he just makes us wait to the very last minute. But he will be faithful and he will come through. But, but, but Saul was getting antsy and he said, oh, Samuel's not here yet. I, no, I have to do something. Bring me the offering. But as soon as, Sam, as, soon as Saul, Saul offers the, the offering, here comes Samuel. And it says Saul goes out to meet him that he might greet him. And I'm sure that Samuel's thinking, oh, here, I got to go out and I got to, you know, meet him and, and, and with a happy face and tell him why I had to do all of this, you know. But listen to what Samuel said. What have you done, Saul? What have you done? Listen to what Saul said. When I saw, notice, when I saw, he begins to make the excuses now. When he said, I saw, he was walking by sight. 
When I saw that the people were scattered for me and that you notice, and that you didn't come with he's he's blaming Saul. He's blaming Samuel now. You didn't come when you said you were coming. Now he's fault finding. He said, you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Now, you see, he's looking at his circumstances. Then I said, that was his justification. I said, he took it with upon himself. The Philistines, he said, I said, he said, now the Philistines are going to come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. So I felt compelled. No, I felt he's being moved by his emotions. His faith had been replaced by fear. He said, I saw you didn't come when you were supposed to. I looked at my situation. I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, well done, Saul. It's a good thing because I, I didn't get here in time. No, he didn't say that. He said, you have done foolishly. In spite of everything that he was going through, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of what he felt, in spite of what his emotions were telling him, you have done wrong, Saul. Here's what you have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. And now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to come to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And here's the point. You can never justify obedience based on your circumstances. Based on necessity. Situation ethics today is a favorite excuse among evil people for ignoring God's word. But understand there are never any legitimate excuses or reasons for disobeying the word of God. You know what? This may sound drastic. It might sound sound way out there. But even when it comes to saving your life, It doesn't justify obedience. And you know what? Jesus showed us that truth very boldly. Because Philippians 2.8, Paul said that, that Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. We have to be obedient to God even if it kills us. You see, God the Son didn't use the threat of death, the cross, and the terrible suffering that he would experience as an excuse to obey the Father. He said, the Father has given me a mission. This is what I have been called to do. And he said, not even the threat of death and the cross is going to keep me from doing it. And who are we to imitate? The Lord Jesus Christ in everything. Verses 12 through 13. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason, he was hired that I should be afraid and act that way and sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. Nehemiah discerned right away the evil that was behind Shemaiah's invitation. And again, how did, how did Nehemiah perceive it so fast? How did he discern so fast that this was a lie? Because, you see, he knew it was contrary to God's word. He knew that it was contrary to God's. It was against God's law for me to go into the house of God. He knew it was against God's law for him to enter into the holy place. He knew that it was a sin. When you get advice or you get counsel that is not scriptural, 
you know right then and there it is not good counsel. Although some people are looking for that kind of counsel because they have itching ears. Being able to perceive true faults, true from false, depends upon our knowledge of the Word of God. Discernment of true and false isn't some gift that comes to you without some reason. You see, the ability to discern, the ability to perceive comes to you by paying attention to the Scriptures. And man, it is a priceless benefit for the believer. Check everything through the Word of God. Everything. Paul said in Romans 4.3, For what does the Scripture say? Isaiah said in chapter 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. He said, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 3, haven't you read the scriptures? What David did when he and his companions were hungry. Matthew 12, 5, and haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? Matthew 19, 4, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? He was talking about divorce. You want to know what the Bible says about divorce? He says, read, you know, he was referring back to Genesis chapter 2. Go back to what God said. But he says, Have you not read? When they asked him about if it's okay if a man divorces his wife. Matthew twenty two thirty one. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Many of the Pharisees didn't believe in the resurrection. He says, have you not read? Mark, 6, Mark 12, 26. Jesus said, but concerning the dead that, that, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses? Over and over again, you read, have you not read? Have you not read? That's always the problem. We don't know the scriptures. And many professing Christians are being deceived today and defeated today by the enemy because they don't know the word of God. But Nehemiah wasn't one of those people. Many church members can listen to a false prophet for years. They can go to a church that preaches preaches bad doctrine and they don't know because they don't know the word of God. They don't know. They never perceive the apostate's falseness because they're ignorant of the word of God. Verse 14. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. Nehemiah's prayer is like the one that he prayed in chapter 4 verses 4 through 5. He simply asks God for judgment on evil men. He says, God, judge them according to their works if they don't repent. And many times it seems like men are getting away with evil, and especially today, and we complain about it. But remember, it's only temporary. It's the grace of God that men today are getting away with their evil. It's the grace of God because His Word said He's not willing that any should perish. But one day, that day of grace is going to close. And it will be time to give account. It's only temporary. The day is coming when they will be judged according to their works by a just and holy God. Shemaiah wasn't the only one giving false messages. There was Noadiah the prophetess mentioned here. 
And there were other prophets, false prophets, trying to put fear into Nehemiah, causing him to go and hide in the temple. We still have a lot of false prophets today who try to tell us that our nation is doing okay. All you got to do is look around. You see, we're not doing okay. False prophets will tell us that we, our nation is doing okay today even though we have abortions every day, rampant drug and alcohol abuse, divorce, immorality, homosexuality, and horrific violence. It's abounding today. Today's false prophets are proclaiming a strange message because it doesn't match up to the Word of God. Some false prophets are telling people that everybody's going to go to heaven. And that there's no hell and there's no hell and there's no, there's no sin. And these kinds of prophets are very popular today. But they're all polluted. And all they'll do to the people and, and, and they'll do to the people who listen to their marriage, all they do to them is defile them and destroy them. Let's close with verses 15 through 19. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things. Notice that they were very disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was done by our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era. And his son Johanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. The walls were completed in 52 days on the 25th day of Elul, which was about September 20th. The building started in the last few days of July and continued through August and into September. The previous November or December was Kislev. That was when Nehemiah first heard about the problem in chapter 1, verse 1. And then in March and April, which was Nisan, he presented his plan to the king of Persia in chapter 2, verse 1. The trip to Israel took about two to three months, April or May or, to, uh, or to June, uh, from June to July. It was as long or, or, or longer than the building program itself. The enemy's self-confidence, notice they became disheartened. The enemy's self-confidence broke down when they saw that the work was done with God's help. You can't fight against God. Opposing God, they were fighting a losing battle. And one reason that Tobiah was able to make some headway into Judah was that he was related to the the Jews in a couple of ways. We read here that his father-in-law, uh, was Shechaniah, the son of Era, And his daughter-in-law was the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, who worked on two sections of the wall. So you see, many of the Jews that were working on the wall, they were supporters of Tobiah. They may have even uh, traded contracts with him, and they kept telling Nehemiah good things about Tobiah. And yet Tobiah tried to in- intimidate Nehemiah with, this, with threatening letters. So now, we've come to the end of this part of the story. The wall, verse 15 says, the wall was finished. But you know what? The work isn't over yet. It's never over in the kingdom of God. This only starts now a new beginning, a new work, because now that the wall is finished, 
Nehemiah has to protect what he's accomplished. And next week, when we look at chapter 7, we see how he does that. Father, we thank you so much for Nehemiah, Lord. We thank you so much for his example. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word, God. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who brings conviction to our lives, God. And that's his, that's his role. To convict the world of righteousness and of sin. And God, as the psalmist says, if, if there's any wicked way in me, Lord, show me. Search my heart, God. And Lord, when we hear things that we don't like, let us not be angry with the messenger or the message. Let us look at ourselves, God. Let us bring our lives into conformance to your word. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And through the message tonight and the work of the Holy Spirit, He's spoken to you. And you recognize, I need Jesus. I need the forgiveness of my sins. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way down the aisles to the steps up front, I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.